All right, you'll want to get out your sermon outline. It says the apostles of the king on it. We're in Matthew chapter 10. You want to turn to Matthew 10, your Bibles, your devices, look on in the bulletin, lots of options. Find Matthew 10. And uh, most of our passage this morning is a list. What do you do with a list? Well, we'll find out. Turn to Matthew 10. We're going to read the first four verses. Please listen carefully as this is the word of God. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You brought us to this amazing gospel uh, once again to learn about your son Jesus. And we ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand this simple story. It just looks like Jesus called a group of men to follow him, and that's that. doesn't seem like it has much to say to us. But as always, it has far more to say to us than we can comprehend. So help us to consider what it means to be called to follow you. By your Spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. Give us your grace. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yvette Vickers would have been 83 years old in August of 2011. But nobody knows exactly how old she was when she died. Vickers was a B-movie star, best known for her role in Attack of the 50-Foot Woman which nobody saw. But she lay dead. She lay dead for the better part of a year before she was found. Her neighbor, noticing the yellow letters overflowing from her mailbox, forced her way into the house and found her mummified body near a computer that was still running, its glow permeating the empty space. Yvette Vickers had no family, no religious community that anybody knows about, no immediate social circle of any kind, and therefore no one missed her when she was gone. It seems that in her final years, her primary connection to other human beings was through online social networks and fan sites. Yvette Vickers is an apt symbol, although incredibly sad, of being incredibly accessible, and at the same time, increasingly isolated. As with so many people today, her relationships, if you can call them that, had grown far broader, but much shallower. And in a world consumed with ever more novel uh, modes of socializing, we've never been more detached. We live in the midst of an accelerating contradiction. The more connected we become, the lonelier we are. We were promised a global village to find ourselves stuck in traffic and the endless freeways that make up a vast suburb of information. 
I wish I wrote that. It's brilliant. Today, if you sign up for Google+, which is Google's lame attempt to take on Facebook, and you set up your friends circle, the program specifies that you should only include, quote, your real friends, the ones you feel comfortable sharing private details with. That one little phrase, your real friends, perfectly demonstrates the anxieties that social media have produced. That Facebook interferes with real friendships, spreading the isolation it was designed to conquer. On Facebook, you can be friends with people you've never met, but your real friends require actually knowing them, spending time with them, talking with them, you know, face-to-face, and doing stuff with them. That's what friends do. They get together and they do stuff and they go places together and eat meals together and talk to each other. And most of all, real friends listen to one another. And that makes today's passage, Matthew 10, verses 1 through 4, pretty remarkable. Because here, Jesus is going to call together this motley crew of men who probably don't like each other very much. These guys don't have much in common. They probably wouldn't even be Facebook friends. But something brought them together, and Acts 17 tells us together they turned the world upside down. So how did that happen? Well, it happened because of Jesus. It happened because Jesus called them. Excuse me. It happened because Jesus called them. And what does that mean? He called them. Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to start with the fact that they were called to be with him. Called to be with him. Should be the first blank there in the outline. Is it? All right. Sometimes I forget. Look at verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Note the very first thing there. He called to him his twelve disciples. He called them to be with him. We have a great illustration of that in the book of Acts. If you remember... When Peter and John got in trouble for healing the lame man in Acts chapter 3, this man who was lame from birth asked them for money as they were entering the temple area. And we read in Acts 3, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from him. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man rose up and walked. And then he leaped. And then he danced. And the apostles got in trouble for it. And after the healing, they proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God. We read farther down, Acts 3, verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health in the presence of you all. So for sharing that message, they get arrested. 
and they brought in front of the council, the Sadducees and the scribes, to give an account of what they've done. And so then they preach Christ to the council. And they end with this statement in Acts 4. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And how does the council respond? We see that in the very next verse, Acts 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's what the calling is first, to be with Jesus. We can see some of that in the parallel passages uh, to our passage in Luke and Mark. In the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 6, we read, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. When the sun came up, Jesus knew what the Father's will was, and he acted with decisive authority. And verse 13 says, He called his apostles and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. In the other uh, parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark, we read, And he went up in the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This is divine choosing, sovereign election. None of the twelve had sought this appointment. They probably didn't even know it was coming. In fact, in the difficult years uh, to come, it would be a comfort to remember that it was Jesus and not themselves who, were, who was responsible for choosing the apostles. And please understand how this happened. You know, Jesus didn't conduct an executive search. He didn't call for volunteers in a show of hands. He called these men according to the sovereign will and purpose of God. And their calling is foreordained just like the calling of Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, John the Baptist, and the Apostle Paul. In John 15, Jesus says, You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed, literally ordained you, to go and produce fruit that will last. So the apostles are called for a reason. They were chosen and appointed to go and produce fruit. But there's a period of time between being called and being sent. And this time is essential. Because first, they're chosen to be trained. There always has to be a training time. And for them, it's three years spent walking with Jesus. They left their nets, their boats, their crops, their businesses, their tax collecting stands, everything, and they wandered around with Jesus. He knew that before they could be sent out, they had to be trained, and so they're going to learn directly from the Master. And learning like this doesn't take place listening to a lecture in a classroom. It happens by watching someone's life and observing what they say and what they do over a long period of time. They're being discipled, by Jesus himself. And that can't be done in a 13-week Sunday school class. Learning, being discipled, is accomplished by spending time with godly people, walking with them, talking with them, 
hearing them speak, seeing them pray, listening to their heartbeat. The apostles are men who went on to literally turn the world upside down uh, with their ministries, preaching, teaching, healing, evangelizing, planning churches, and going everywhere and anywhere to do it. But before they could do anything, they had to spend time with Jesus. These men are going to be tremendously persecuted along the way. But even their adversaries take note, as we've already seen, that they had been with Jesus. If we're going to be followers of Christ, then we have to be people who spend time with Jesus. There's no way around it. The application of this is almost too easy. It's simply a mockery to call yourself a Christian and not spend time with Christ. It means we have to respond to his effectual calling on our lives by spending time learning from him, reading his word, talking with him in prayer, telling others about him. Anything less means it's a relationship of convenience. And I don't think Jesus calls, him to, uh, calls us to follow him when it's convenient. He calls us to follow him, period. There's no conditions or exceptions. And it was the same way with the apostles. Jesus called them, Jesus trained them, Jesus sent them out. Let's look at these guys a little bit. It's because it's important for us to see that they were called to him by name. They were called to him by name. Look at verse 2. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the group that Christ is going to send out as official emissaries to the world, and they're going to have special power and authority. And after the arrival and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they're going to become the official witnesses and leaders of this new community known as the Christian Church. And they're going to preach the word with authority and gather his people into the church. And some of them are going to become inspired writers of the New Testament. Now, we don't know the exact order in which Jesus called their names. All the lists in the Bible begin with Peter and end with Judas. But in between, the order changes. But today, every name on that list has a notable ring to it. Um, Even the least known. But when Jesus chose them, they were all unknowns. The original no-name offense. Except for Judas Iscariot, they're all country boys from Galilee. Four of them are fishermen. One's a notorious tax collector. None of them are famous or rich or noble or well-connected. There's no religious leaders among them. No scribes, no priests, no elders, no Pharisees. They're all relatively poor. And as Luke would later write, They were uneducated, common men. Whereas the New Living translates that verse, they're ordinary men who had no special training. There's nothing in them that deserved recognition. There's nothing in them that meant that they deserved to be chosen as an apostle. For the most part, they're unworthy men. Simon Peter is the key figure. He's the leader of the group and often spoke for the disciples. 
good friend of mine said, Peter was the guy who opened his mouth to change feet. And we see that in the New Testament. Andrew is Peter's brother. He's rarely mentioned outside of these lists. The only thing we know about him is he brought Peter to Jesus. In fact, the very few times that we see Andrew in the Gospels, he's bringing someone to Jesus. James and John are brothers. They're both fishermen. James never appears apart from his brother John. Jesus called them sons of thunder. These are the guys who, when Jesus was turned away from a Samaritan village, told Jesus to call down fire from heaven and burn the place to the ground. He'll be at the bonfire tomorrow night. They love that stuff. It does lead us to believe that James is sort of this passionate, aggressive guy. He's one of the first to be martyred. King Herod captured both Peter and James in Acts 12. He put Peter in jail, but he chopped off James' head, obviously considering James to be the bigger problem. And John's an uncompromising man who loved Christ. He lived longer than any of the other apostles. And at the end of his life, after the rest of the New Testament was written, he sat down and penned three epistles, and then the Gospel of John, arguably the greatest letter ever written in history, and the book of Revelation. And he wrote extensively about the love of Christ because he experienced it firsthand. And when no eyewitnesses of Jesus were left to tell the story, John did. Philip is only mentioned a few times in the Gospel of John. It's usually not very flattering. Most of the time, he's missing the point of whatever it is Jesus is teaching about. And at first glance, it appears he has limited ability, inadequate faith, and an imperfect understanding of Jesus' power and grace. Bartholomew is listed elsewhere as Nathaniel. And in John 1, we see he's a man of simple faith and little doubts. He's a student of Scripture, a searcher of truth, a seeker of God, and yet it's the same Nathaniel when he was first told about Christ said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Pretty clear, Nathaniel was a little prejudiced and biased against those who came from the small country villages. To put it in our language, he didn't like rednecks. And if you were from Nazareth, you qualified. At the same time, though, when Jesus first saw him in John chapter 1, the text says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael Bartholomew appears to be that kind of person where you knew where you stood with him, good or bad. He called him as he saw him, straight and to the point. And every Nathanael I've ever met is the same way, including my grandson. Straight and to the point. Now, Thomas is a disciple who will be forever remembered as having to be convinced of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, very easy. If I say doubting, you would say Thomas. That's right. The few times Jesus talks to Thomas, uh, he's trying to comfort him, strengthen him, and encourage him. It seems that Thomas is somewhat of a pessimist, easily depressed, probably accounts for him doubting the resurrection. Now, Matthew, we've already met. He's also known as Levi 
the tax collector. He's a professional extortionist. His calling is a complete surprise because everyone knows he's a notorious sinner. But the great thing about Matthew is that he knew he was a big sinner. And so repentance came easy to him. And then we have James, the son of Alphaeus, of whom we know virtually nothing. The only thing we know about him is his name. That's it. The book of James was written by James, Jesus' brother, not this guy. It is not known if this James ever wrote anything, and nothing he ever said, asked, or did is recorded in the Bible. Just a nameless, faceless, ordinary guy. Thaddeus is called, in the other list, Jude, or Judas, the son of James, or Judas, not Iscariot. He only appears once in the Bible, uh, in, in John 14, and he asks Jesus a question because uh, he doesn't understand what Jesus is trying to teach. And that's all we know about him. It's possible he wrote the book of Jude, but we don't know that for sure. Now, Simon the Canaanian is more commonly known as Simon the Zealot. He's this political nationalist who hated the Romans and hated everyone who worked with the Romans meaning people like Matthew. And the zealots are the guys who fought the Romans wherever and whenever they could. They're hot-headed patriots who saw the coming Messiah as a conquering king who would lead them against the Romans. And the zealots are essentially wiped out at Masada when they committed mass suicide rather than be captured by the Romans. Simon is not a meek, mild-mannered guy. And then finally we have Judas Iscariot, who uh, has become infamous throughout history for his betrayal of Christ. Think about this. He accepts this call from Christ. But for some reason, the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of his word, the gospel of his grace means nothing to this guy. And he never produces fruit that lasts. And if we read of the three years they walk with Jesus, the surprising thing is you see very quickly that these men lacked spiritual understanding, they lacked humility, they lacked faith, and they lacked commitment. There is no way at face value that these guys are going to amount to much. These guys wouldn't get along, they're not going to understand each other, they don't want to work together, and they have very little in common. And yet Jesus called them, and he called them to be with him and he called them by name. But then he made sure that they knew he called them to be part of a team. He called them to a team. This is the only place in Matthew where they're called apostles. The word means sent ones. It denotes action rather than status. The disciples become apostles when they go out on mission. To be an apostle is simply to be a a representative, a herald, a messenger. And the word apostles, it's not used here in its fullest sense. He's not yet commissioned these men to go out into all the world. Right now at the start, he commissions them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. First to go to the villages and towns of Galilee and into Judea and minister uh, the word of Christ to the people of God, bring the message of salvation to the Jews, and then a foundation will be built among those who believe in Jesus. And it's only at the time of Pentecost and after the ascension of Christ 
will these men be commissioned to go out into all the world? We have a foreshadowing of the Great Commission uh, here because all one of these men will be the apostles upon whom the foundation of the church will be built. Mark chapter 6 tells us initially they were sent out two by two. And Matthew hints at that here. Notice between each of the names there's an and, indicating that they're paired, they're sent out in pairs. Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, James and Thaddeus, Simon and Judas. Maybe being a zealot, he's the only one that can handle Judas, I don't know. But they're sent out two by two, indicating the ministry in God's kingdom is not to be done as lone rangers, even by apostles, but together in mutual support. And here again, we're reminded of the truth. The world needs to hear a message that only the church can give. And that message is the truth of the gospel of God's grace as it's found in Jesus Christ. That message is necessary and needed by the world. And it needs teams of people to take that message out. And therefore, it's our responsibility. It's not just our responsibility to give to spreading the message. It's not just our responsibility to pray for spreading the message. It's our responsibility to be directly involved in spreading the message. Now, that may not uh, mean doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. We all have different gifts and strengths. And all of us are responsible to be involved in sharing the gospel. <coughs> may mean a cup of coffee with a neighbor. Maybe that neighbor is having marital problems. And you're able to minister the comfort and words of Christ to them. It may be standing firm in the context of work. And witnessing to the truth and the integrity that the gospel brings. Maybe talking to a friend whose life is falling apart and is grasping for meaning and sharing with them the gospel and the way of salvation. All of us are called in somehow, some way to bear witness to Christ. But you can't do it on your own. The apostles weren't sent out on their own. They were sent as a group, as a team. And that should be an enormous encouragement. I mean, gifts emerge among uh, the, the group that one never dreamed of. Because somebody has to do it. That'll happen with our group in New York City this week. They will come back and somebody will say, I didn't think I could do this, but I did. Supporting one another leads to greater fellowship. People ministering as part of a team. You know, you can hardly engineer a greater contrast between this contemplative man like John, a fisherman like James, hot-blooded Peter, and this cool, calculating Matthew. They are very much a mixed bunch, but they bond together through a shared mission and teamwork. A mission is shared, and it's vital to be part of a team. Now, most people who follow sports know who Mike Krzyzewski is. Known as Coach K, mostly because his last name is spelled far differently than it's pronounced. And depending on your affiliations, he's either the well-loved or greatly despised 
coach of the Duke Blue Devils basketball team. And in December of 2011, he shared Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year uh, honors with the legendary coach Pat Summit of the Tennessee Lady Volunteers. And Coach K is constantly talking to his team about taking ownership. He tells the players, I want you to be on my bus. Right now, you only want a seat on the bus. And don't get me wrong, that's good, but it's not what I'm looking for. If you own the program, you own the bus. Saying, Coach, I'm already on the bus. Take me wherever it's going. And Coach K says, you want to own the bus? We have five new managers this season. Do you know their names? If you own the program, you know every person on the bus. Who cleans our locker room? Felipe does. Who cleans our practice facility? Stephanie does. Who cleans our offices? Celestina does. And the next day brings the entire custodial staff to practice. Fellas, you're not going to meet better people in this world than Felipe and Stephanie and Celestina. And until you take ownership, you miss out on the things that make us better. And I read that, and I was wondering, just wondering, you know, if Jesus ever gathered his disciples around him one day, all the disciples, not just the twelve. And he said to the twelve, fellas, you're not going to meet better people in this world than these people. Right now they're following me, but soon they'll follow me by following you. If you own the program, you know every person on the bus. Perhaps sometime later, he gathered the twelve and said, fellas, you're not going to meet better people in this world than Stephen and Barnabas and Mark, or Silas and Timothy and Titus, or Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos, or Dorcas and Phoebe and Paul. You haven't even met them yet. They haven't shown up in the story yet, but they'll play a major role if you make them part of the team. If you own the program, you know every person on the bus. Now, we don't know if Jesus ever said anything like that. Back then, nobody even knew what a bus was. But they knew what a team was, and they knew what real friends were, and they understood partnership, and they knew what it meant to work together, and their lives demonstrated that. They formed the nucleus of a band of brothers that conquered the world with grace. And when we get to heaven, we will find this ordinary group of guys has their names engraved on the 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem, as we see in Revelation 21. And how does this happen? It happened because the only common bond they had was Jesus. When God calls ordinary men and women to follow him, his call is always effectual. It always changes people. It always brings grace. It doesn't depend on the knowledge and skills and abilities of those people. And it's always been that way. What does that mean for you and me? Are we called? Absolutely. Are we called by Jesus? We sure are. Are we called to be with Jesus? That's what he says. Are we called to work like Jesus? Of course. He tells us what to do. Are we called by him personally? No doubt. John 10 makes it clear that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. Are we called to be part of a team? Oh, yeah. And it's his team. It's called the church. And you're part of it whether you know it or not. 
If you've been through our new member class, you know there's a part of the class on our philosophy of ministry. And there's some frequently asked questions. And one of those frequently asked questions is, what about marketing and outreach programs? And we answer that question by saying, in effect, we believe that Jesus has said to his followers, you are my marketing strategy. You are my outreach program. You're the means by which my message will be spread in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school. And you'll do it by being salt and light. And therefore, all of us, the people that God has called to Potomac Hills, are the marketing plan and the outreach program of the church. Because we're all called to be salt and light in our family, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our school. As this kind of marketing and outreach uh, is the result of spiritual growth. It's the result of learning from Jesus. It's the result of spending time with Jesus. And then the emphasis on helping people become salt and light wherever God has placed them is what will make the difference in reaching other people. If you own the program, you know every person on the bus. Do you own the program? Are you on the bus? Do you know the names of the other people on the bus? Because they're sitting next to you this morning. They're sitting behind you. They're out in the lobby rocking their kid. They're in the cafeteria teaching your kid. And they're praying for you by name on Sunday night. And they came in early to make sure all this stuff works by the time you get here. Do you know their names? They probably know yours. Your child's Sunday school teachers know the name of every kid in their class. Your small group leaders know the name of every person in their group. When your faucet leaks or your finances run dry, the deacons will know your name. And when your marriage gets rocky or the sin in your life starts to pile up, the elders will know your name. Jeff knows the name of every teen in this church. Dave knows the name of every college student in this church. Tom knows the name of every person who's visited in the last two months. We recently had another new members class, the third of what will probably be six this year. You know who was there? Gabriella, Mark, Matt, Raleigh, Shane, Cheryl, and Tamala. If you own the program, you know the name of everyone on the bus. When God calls ordinary men and women to follow him, his call doesn't depend on the knowledge, skills, and abilities of those people. And the Bible makes that clear. This spring we studied Judges in Sunday school. And back in Judges, God called Gideon. You remember how Gideon responded? Judges 6, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. But God uses Gideon in a dramatic way. It's true for Moses. Lord, I can't speak very well. It's true for David. Lord, he's the youngest. It's true for Jeremiah. Lord, you got the wrong guy. But the great glory of God's call is that our weakness is the opportunity for God to demonstrate his strength. The Apostle Paul makes that clear in 2 Corinthians 4, but says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are the jars of clay, frail, fragile people. 
but we contain treasure, treasure being the gospel of God's grace as it's found in Jesus Christ. The gospel is committed to common people so that the power and strength that comes forth will be seen as God's and not ours. And an awareness of our own sin and weakness brings us close to Christ and makes us more dependent on Christ. And we have to embrace that great truth that for ordinary people, God has used them and they have always lived with the reality that they are clay. When they met Christ, they became conscious of all their sins and all their weaknesses. But rather than focus on the sins and weaknesses, they turned away from them and relied on God. It was out of this dependence on God that his great power is seen. And it's in that dependence that we can trust God and we can tell people about Jesus. After all, you've been called. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. In this passage, we see your son. We see him calling the apostles. We see him calling us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. Enable us to trust Jesus and to tell others about him. And as always, help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.